Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. This episode contains distressing themes and is intended for mature audiences only. Listener discretion is advised. On this episode of They Walk Among America. The shocking murder of two doctors goes unsolved for years. The story of what happened only comes to light when a member of a confidential group goes against the grain and tells the police what they know. But even with evidence supporting a confession made to many, privilege can trump the truth. Hello, listeners. I'm your host, Nina Instead. Welcome to Episode 89 of They Walk Among America, a joint production between the Law and Crime Podcast Network and They Walk Among Us, the award-winning true crime podcast. Twenty-six-year-old Arati Johnston had been unable to get through to her parents for several days. Her 5 a.m. ritual of speaking with her father, who was also an early riser, had been interrupted since December 31st. When he didn't answer or call back on January 1st, 1989, she grew concerned. Arati lived in Ontario, Canada, over 500 miles from her parents' home in Larchmont, New York. So she called her uncle, Narayan, who lived close to them, and asked him to check in. Her uncle arrived at the beautiful three-bedroom white stone home on Lincoln Street the following morning. After walking up the driveway toward the back door, he immediately noticed the glass pane had been smashed. Panicked, he raced to the Larchmont police station to report what he had seen. Sergeant Kenneth Kahn was one of the officers to accompany him back to the house. He asked Narayan to wait outside as he walked through the property, but when Narayan heard the sergeant radio he had found them, he rushed upstairs. He made it to the doorway of the master bedroom and recoiled in horror. He later said, What I saw was really gruesome, like a war field. Blood spatters were along the walls and ceiling, and on a bed in the middle of the room were the lifeless bodies of 58-year-old Dr. Lakshman Rao Sherva and his 51-year-old wife, Shanta Sherva. Shanta's legs were hanging off the edge of the bed. 
Her head and upper body had slumped back into Lakshman's arm, still beneath the bed covers. It was immediately apparent that they'd both been stabbed and their throats had been slit. The house was cordoned off as investigators looked for evidence, but the phone kept ringing until an officer finally picked it up. It was the Sherva's other child, 29-year-old Aaron. His uncle Narayan was still at the scene and broke the news to him about his parents' death. Lakshman and Shanta Sherva had moved from their home in southern India to Canada with their young children in 1968. Soon after, they moved to the Bronx where they lived in a co-op apartment. In 1974, the Shervas were able to purchase a beautiful home in an affluent middle-class area of Larchmont. Lakshman and Shanta both worked at the Albert Einstein College of Medicine in the Bronx. Lakshman had a Ph.D. in nuclear chemistry and worked his way up to be the director of the nuclear medicine lab at Einstein. Shanta had a master's degree in business administration and was a chief technologist at the college. Their children, Aaron and Arati, were in high school, but Shanta wanted to be a doctor, so she put herself through night school and then went to medical school in Grenada. She got her medical degree in 1985. Their niece, Lakshmi, later said, Education was of paramount importance to them, and that's why she went off to school so late. It was an endless push to do better. She had other degrees, too, a BA and an MBA. By 1988, Shanta was doing a geriatrics fellowship at the Montefiore while also working nights at the emergency department of New Rochelle Hospital Medical Center. The couple's son, Aaron, was living and working in Los Angeles as a vascular surgeon after graduating from Cornell and UCLA. Their daughter, Arati, was married and living in London, Ontario, where she worked as a marketing executive. Having come to the United States with very little, the Shervas knew how lucky they were to have obtained their own American dream, and they wanted to give their family members in India the same opportunity. They sponsored nieces and nephews and brought them to America to help them get a better education and job prospects. That was the type of people they were. They were insular and family-oriented and had unrelenting ambition. In late 1988, the Shervas were finally getting a chance to put themselves first. Their children and family members were leading their own lives, so they had more free time. Lakshman worked 9 to 5, Monday to Friday. With Shanta working late shifts at the emergency department, Lakshman poured his energy into maintaining and improving their home. He renovated the kitchen and installed beautiful cherrywood cabinets. Shanta loved to be in the kitchen when she was home. She was a vegetarian who adored Indian cuisine. As a gift, her daughter Arati had bought her a good quality knife set. I just wanted to make her life a little easier, Arati said. Shanta and Lakshman were loved and respected by their co-workers. Anne Kenny, a nurse who worked in the emergency department alongside Shanta, stated, She was always so kind and generous. She always came in with a smile on her face, and that isn't easy to do sometimes. There is a cloud hanging over the emergency room today. 
After the bodies were removed from the property, their autopsies were conducted by Westchester County Chief Medical Examiner Dr. Millard Highland. Dr. Highland believed that the Shervas had been dead for at least 24 hours when their bodies were discovered on the morning of January 2nd. Both victims had been stabbed multiple times and had their throats slit while they were in bed and in their pajamas. Shanta was still wearing her Mangal Sutra, a necklace traditionally tied around a bride's neck during their wedding ceremony. Dr. Highland believed that Shanta's throat was slit after she was already dead as she had been stabbed eight times in the neck, chest, and upper arm. The knife had pierced her heart and lungs, which would have caused her to bleed out quickly. Lakshman had been stabbed 14 times in the face, neck, and abdomen. His lung, liver, kidney, stomach, intestines, and pancreas had all been damaged in the attack before his throat was slashed with such force that it perforated his voice box. He had also sustained stab wounds to his hand, indicating he had tried to defend himself. While crime scene technicians continued to collect evidence inside the Shervis home, police officers canvassed their quiet neighborhood located half a mile from the Long Island Sound, a hundred-mile estuary that flowed in from the Atlantic. Investigators were able to rule out robbery as a motive almost immediately. Detective Captain Michael Garcia said, Nothing seems to be missing from the house, and the rooms certainly were not ransacked, but you never know. There may have been something worth taking that we do not yet know about. This was the first homicide in Larchmont in over a decade, shocking the small community and its 6,000 residents. One of the last people to see Shanta was her co-worker, Dr. Carlos Risch. Shanta had finished her last shift on Friday, December 30th at 11 p.m., and was due to return to work the following day at 1 p.m. After learning about the murder, Dr. Risch told the reporter dispatch, I was stunned. From what I hear, it was a very violent situation, and she was such a small person. Nurse Ann Kenny had tried to call Shanta several times when she didn't show up for work on December 31st, but there was no answer. That wasn't like her. She was always on time. I didn't know what happened until I turned on the radio this morning and heard about it. It's just terrible. Investigators searched for a murder weapon throughout the neighborhood and the surrounding areas. Those who lived on the same street as the Shervas hoped it was not a random attack. Their neighbor Joan Sasson said, It's scary to think that something like this could happen almost anywhere. I think that people would like to believe that it was something specific, but I have no inkling why it would be directed at these people. In keeping with the victim's Hindu customs, the remains were cremated at a private ceremony on January 4, 1989. There were fears within the Indian-American community that the attack was racially motivated. The National Federation of Indian Americans offered a $5,000 reward for information that would lead to the arrest and conviction of the killer. Others who lived in Larchmont openly expressed their concerns that the murders were related to a group home for the mentally ill that had admitted its first residence four months before the murders. The police insisted there was nothing to link the homicides to the group home, but very little information was being released. 
A meeting was organized between the Indian American groups and the police as a result. Prakash Parekh, the Secretary of the National Federation of Indian Americans, said, There is tremendous concern in the Indian community about the lack of progress in this situation. We felt it was best to bring together the community and the people involved in it. In response, Police Chief Kersey told the reporters, You must not construe a lack of public information with a lack of effort or of insensitivity. Teams of investigators from three agencies have been working long, extensive hours. They are competent, they are trained, and they are experienced. Police had expressed that the family of the victims had not been interviewed extensively, which led to speculation about their lack of cooperation. But the family released a statement that read, We are deeply moved by the feelings expressed by one and all of you here. We are very much shocked and grieved by this tragedy. We have stayed in seclusion these days. We have also stayed away from the media for obvious reasons of safety and to avoid any speculative talk. We would like to tell you that we are a very close-lipped, affectionate family. We are simple people, peace-loving people. It is shocking to us that this incident has happened in our family. The Shervas were incredibly close to their relatives, many of whom had come to the U.S. after being sponsored by Lakshman and Shanta. While they struggled to come to terms with their devastating loss, life returned to normal on Lincoln Street. One local said, We may be totally wrong, but the general belief seems to be that this was not random, not some crazy murderer. There really has been no request for concerted community action. There was more fear when there was a series of burglaries about four years ago. With no progress made in the months that followed, the Indian American community expressed that they were losing faith in the police, and the reward increased to $25,000. The Sherva's house went up for sale in May 1989. Five months later, police liaised with a psychic named Yolana who was hailed as having assisted the police in solving over 60 homicide and missing persons cases. But no further evidence was found, and by June of the following year, Chief Kersey stated, It's a case that's obviously still open because it hasn't been solved, but it's relatively inactive. We still hope something will surface, but it's unlikely. Their family members tried to keep their memory alive and the case in the media throughout the next two years. The Sherva's nephew, Raghu Bandlamudi, remarked, In every sense of the word, they epitomized the American dream. They immigrated here, they worked hard, they built themselves a home and achieved prominent positions as doctors. And they brought ten brothers and sisters here. How would you feel about their death? Everything changed in May 1993, when a young woman came forward and told the police that her former roommate, Paul Cox, told her he had killed two people in the house he used to live in when he had a flashback of abuse. She said Cox believed he was killing his parents at the time. The woman, who was known as Miss H., had met Cox at an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting and had lived with him and another roommate, Mr. R., 
from February 1993 to April 1993. Before she moved in, Cox had told her there was something he needed to let her know if she was going to live there. He described having nightmares that he was piecing back together. It was something that had happened a few years earlier about breaking into his old house on Lincoln Street and killing two people in their bed. Miss H. had moved back to her parents' house in April 1993 after contracting mononucleosis, but on the advice of her therapist, she had reported what she had been told to the police. She also told them that she wasn't the only one who knew about it. Cox had told at least six other members of the Alcoholics Anonymous group. Paul Cox was born in Larchmont in 1967 to Francis and Mary Cox. His maternal family were a prominent fixture in Larchmont. His grandfather, Joseph V. Vandernoot, was a revered local politician who had served in the 1970s as the Mamaronic town supervisor. The fifth born of seven children, Cox came from a loving and successful family. His father worked as the vice president of a bank, and his mother was a member of the Junior League of Westchester on the Sound, a women's organization that promotes female-led social activism and community involvement. The same year Cox was born, his family moved into a beautiful early-century stone house on Lincoln Street. They spent seven years living in number 36 until they purchased a bigger house on the exclusive Prospect Street, near the water's edge. The house on Lincoln Street was sold to Laxman and Shanta in 1974. Cox graduated from the Iona Preparatory School in New Rochelle in 1986 and went on to attend St. Thomas Aquinas Private College in Rockland County. He flunked out of college and had an unsuccessful few weeks in the Air Force. By 1993, he was operating his own carpentry company called PC Construction. He also worked as a supervisor in the apartment building he lived in. One of the residents there said, The place was a rat hole, and he took care of cleaning it up. He did seem like a nice guy. He never gave any trouble. After spending years as someone who put drinking over everything, Cox seemed to be settling down and he had been a member of his local Alcoholics Anonymous group for three years. AA has a 12-step program, a group of principles which help them abstain from drinking alcohol. The first four steps revolve around accepting that you have a problem and realizing the things you have done wrong as a result. The fifth step is, admitting to God, to ourselves, and to another human being, the exact nature of our wrongs. It was at this step that Cox began to admit his wrongs to multiple members of his AA group. Investigators arranged for the other members of the group to be interviewed. Through their statements, the detectives were able to piece together a timeline of events. Cox had come home from college during the Christmas break in December 1988. On December 30th, he had arranged to meet up with some old friends at a bar in New Rochelle. His mother had let him borrow her car as he had told her he was the designated driver for the night. 
but Cox spent the night drinking beers and kamikaze cocktails with his friends. Soon after 2 a.m., they left the bar in Cox's mother's car, and he crashed it into a guardrail on Fifth Avenue. Instead of waiting around for the police to arrive or returning to the party with his friends, Cox began walking back toward his parents' home. When the police arrived and found the car abandoned, they called Cox's parents home, and when they learned that he wasn't there, they called local hospitals to try and find him. Instead of going straight home, Cox had walked into the Sherva's house on Lincoln Street. The AA members he had confessed to stated, What he said was that he was in a blackout, and he wandered up to their house, broke a window, took a knife from the kitchen, and then went up to the bedroom. Then he came out of his blackout and realized what he had done. He thought he was in his old house. Cox told the other members that he had returned to his parents' house on Prospect Street and fell asleep. When he woke up the next morning, he got rid of his bloody clothes and the murder weapon. One of the AA members went on to say, He threw the knife in the sound, but I guess everybody's figured that out by now. On May 20th, 1993, Cox was arrested and brought in for questioning. When his fingerprints were taken, they were found to be an exact match to fingerprints found on the Sherva's back door, and his palm print matched a bloody handprint found on the pillow next to Shanta's head. He was indicted on four counts of second-degree murder six days later, two counts of intentional murder and two counts of depraved indifference murder. The prosecution requested a $2 million bail because Cox had a history of psychiatric treatment, and he had told a nurse at the jail that he would attempt to flee. His attorney, Andrew Rubin, argued that if Cox was going to run away, he would have done so in the four years prior to his arrest. The only reason he had told a nurse he would flee was because he wanted to be shot by the police. He was held without bail at the Westchester County Jail in Valhalla for a time before being released on $250,000 bond in late June 1993 on the condition that he stayed in his parents' home and wore an electronic monitor. His parents had used their home and bank accounts as surety. The Sherva's nephew, Raghu, said, We're still outraged that the bail was set at this level and his release really doesn't lessen our sense of outrage. If anything, I think his release trivializes the crime. After four and a half years of waiting for a killer to be found, the Shervo's relatives were angered by Cox's bail. Lakshman's sister, Saraswati, stated, It's very unfair. We are very frightened by this. How can they let him go? Lakshman's niece, Lakshmi, told reporters, you can't imagine what we've been going through for the past four years. It's been very difficult. And now we find out they caught someone and they're going to let him go? I don't understand. The trial had been set for November 1993, but the defense filed motions to suppress the statements of the AA members based on the admissibility of what Cox had told them during what was supposed to be a confidential AA meeting. During the delays, Cox's younger brother, Brian, fell off a 24th floor balcony at a hotel in Honolulu, Hawaii. 
His body was found on an outcropping on the fifth floor in January 1994. When the autopsy was completed, the medical examiner found that his blood alcohol level was three times the New York limit. It was a devastating blow for the Cox family, and they received widespread support. That support continued four months later when jury selection for Paul Cox's trial began. The trial began before a jury of three men and nine women in White Plains in June 1994. 26-year-old Paul Cox had pleaded not guilty to four counts of second-degree murder by reason of mental defect. The defense claimed that he had suffered a psychotic episode brought on by heavy drinking. Many of the Churvu's family members were seated in the gallery, including their children, siblings, and nieces and nephews. Shanta's brother-in-law, Rao, spoke about their relief that the trial was finally in progress four and a half years after they had been killed. Rao said, Our minds will not be at peace, their souls will not rest, until this person is given the maximum punishment under the law. Opening for the prosecution, George L. Bolin told the jury that Cox had acted purposefully and consciously when he killed the Shervas in his childhood home on Lincoln Street in the early hours of New Year's Eve, 1988. Bolin told the court that Cox had spent the night drinking at Garley's Barleycorn Bar in New Rochelle before getting into his mother's car. He crashed the car on a bend along Fifth Avenue and then ran off to evade the police officers who were en route to the scene about 3 a.m. He ran across I-95 and soon arrived at the house on Lincoln Street. Cox went into the backyard and smashed the glass on the door to let himself inside. He made his way to the kitchen where he pulled a long knife from the set the Shervas had been gifted from their daughter. Bolin said that Cox then walked up the stairs and into the master bedroom. He attacked Shanta first, punching her in the face before raining down blows with the knife in his hand. Lakshman was then stabbed to death too. Cox slit both of the victim's throats and cleaned the blood from himself before fleeing the scene. Bolin believed that the killer may not have been caught if Cox hadn't told certain people different things about the Sherva murder. The prosecutor said that one of the people he had confessed to reported it to the police, which led to Cox's arrest in May 1993. His fingerprints matched those found at the scene, and his palm print was identical to a bloody print on Shanta's pillowcase, according to an FBI fingerprint specialist. The medical examiner explained that was consistent with Cox standing over Shanta with his left hand leaning on the pillow as he slit her throat with the knife in his right hand. The defense attempted to argue that Paul Cox was mentally ill at the time. Cox's attorney, Andrew A. Rubin, told the court that his client had no memories of what had occurred because he had been in an alcoholic blackout. Without stealing anything, without sexually assaulting anybody, without destroying valuables, furniture, pictures, someone broke in, went upstairs, killed these people, brutally, and left. The police did everything they could. They never thought it could be somebody who lived in the house 14 and a half years prior. Why? because it makes no sense. 
Paul Cox could not have known what he was doing during the early morning hours of December 31, 1988, because it makes no sense. Attorney Rubin said that Cox had experienced recurrent nightmares about killing his parents in his childhood home. He told the jury, In this dream, he sees himself slashing with the knife. Only the faces of the people he sees are those of his parents. Rubin explained that the nightmares indicated obvious delusions, as Cox could have just gone to his parents' house and killed them if he wanted to. Rubin told the court, Nothing speaks of a person in his right mind at the time these crimes were committed. The defense attorney said that Cox's alcoholism stemmed from an undiagnosed learning difficulty, low self-esteem, and suicidal ideations that developed during his time in college. The court heard from Sergeant Kenneth Kahn, who had been one of the first officers at the scene. He testified that he had been told by Shanta's brother about a broken pane of glass on the Sherva's back door, and when he went inside, he found their bodies. Detective Dennis Zack testified about blood spatters that were noted on the walls and ceiling of the bedroom. He told the court that he believed the stains were caused by cast-off blood spatters from the knife as the victims were repeatedly stabbed. The judge heard arguments from both sides in relation to graphic crime scene photos. The defense believed that the photos would be inflammatory to the jury and argued, We are not contesting the cause of death or even the instrumentality of death. For what other purpose could the district attorney use six photos that are particularly gruesome other than to prejudice the jury? The prosecution countered that each photograph was submitted for a substantial probative reason and that they supported their theories about the sequence of events during the murders. Arati Johnston, the Sherva's 30-year-old daughter, testified about the knife set she had given her mother. The largest knife was missing from the set following the murder, which was believed to have been the murder weapon. Jurors viewed the blood-stained pillowcase that was in the Sherva's bedroom. Robert Adamo, a supervisor at the Westchester County Department of Laboratories and Research, testified that the stains were believed to have been made from a bloodied hand. The pillowcase had been given to the FBI for advanced fingerprint analysis during the investigation. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs no deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Miss S., a former girlfriend of Paul Cox, whom he had begun dating in 1990, 
testified about what he had told her. Miss S. had only recently graduated from high school, and she recalled how she and Cox had joined AA the same year. A few months later, as Cox approached the fourth and fifth steps in the 12-step program where he would have to admit his wrongs, Cox broke down to Miss S. and told her he believed he had killed two people. She recalled, He said he was also afraid he might have done it because the room where the two people were killed was in the room in which his parents lived when he was young. Miss S. told the court that Cox had told her he had been diagnosed as being patricidal and matricidal as a child but she still could not believe he had done it. She testified, I said, no way, I know you, you're loving and kind, it's not possible. Miss S. had encouraged Cox to speak with his AA sponsor, Mr. C. Mr. C. testified that Cox had called him in the middle of the night and told him he was having problems with the fourth and fifth steps. Mr. C. told the court, I said, what's the problem? And I remember specifically, ironically saying, how bad could it be? You didn't kill anyone, did you? And then there was a long pause on the phone. Eventually, Cox told his sponsor that he wasn't sure because he had a blackout, but he was afraid that he had killed someone because he remembered waking up in bloody clothes and believed his mother had thrown the clothes away. Cox's sponsor spoke about it with a longtime AA member called Mr. O. Mr. O then consulted his own father, who had advised Cox to keep going to AA meetings. Mr. O had also advised Cox to hire a lawyer. Cox eventually hired his legal counsel, who represented him at the trial, Andrew Rubin. Cox had also spoken to another member of the group called Mr. A., Mr. A had been open about his past as a gang member, so Cox had approached him and asked if he had ever killed anyone. Mr. A had not, but Cox had gone into detail about the murders. Mr. A testified that Cox had seemed agitated and had been living in fear of being found out for a long time, and that's why he didn't finish college and was keeping low-profile jobs. Another witness who was an AA member, Mr. S., told the court that Cox had approached him to reveal his fears in late 1990 or early 1991. Mr. S. testified, He told me he thought he had done something really bad. He said that after a period of drinking, he had gone into these people's house where he lived and killed the people with a knife while they slept. Mr. S. also spoke about how Cox had told him he had disposed of the knife by throwing it into the Long Island Sound. In late December 1991, Cox moved in with an AA member called Mr. R. They had met at an Alcoholics Anonymous New Year's Eve party a year earlier. Mr. R. said that Cox had recalled vivid dreams to him numerous times. Mr. R. told the court, On the third occasion, we talked about it. It was a lot more dramatic. There were a lot more details. It seemed clear as a bell. Mr. R. testified that Cox had told him about walking away from a car crash on New Year's Eve and heading toward the house on Lincoln Street. Cox had told Mr. R. that he had broken in through a rear window and took a knife from the kitchen before heading to the master bedroom and sitting on the edge of the bed. Mr. R. told the court, The woman woke up and he stabbed her many times. He told me the man woke up and was pleading with him, and he stabbed him many times. 
and that before he left, he slit their throats to make sure they were dead. Mr. R. testified that Cox had also told him about throwing the knife into the Long Island Sound and burning his bloody clothes in an incinerator the following day. In February 1993, Miss H. moved in with Cox and Mr. R. Cox had told her that he needed to tell her something if she was going to be his roommate. He told her that he would wake up screaming from a nightmare and was piecing back together a night in the house he had grown up in a few years prior. She told the court, In his mind, when he went over to the house, he was killing his parents. That's what he thought. Cox's parents sat behind him throughout the repetitive testimony about how he had wanted to kill them, in keeping with the unwavering support they had displayed since his arrest a year earlier. The defense attempted to bolster their case by questioning the sergeant who responded to the crash that preceded the murders on New Year's Eve, 1988. Sergeant Robert Smith recalled finding Cox's mother's 1979 Chevrolet abandoned on Fifth Avenue. The defense produced the accident report that noted three areas of damage. Sergeant Smith agreed that the areas were consistent with places where the driver could have hit their head when the car crashed into the guardrail. Some of the victim's family members were too distraught during the medical examiner's testimony to stay in the courtroom. Dr. Millard Highland told the court that the Shervas had been dead for at least 24 hours when their bodies were found. As one entered, the room had an aroma. I guess a better word would be an odor of decomposition, of putrefaction, of decay. Shanta sustained eight stab wounds. The blade had pierced her heart and spine. Dr. Highland said that her throat was slit after she was already dead. Lakshman had been stabbed 14 times. The injuries had been inflicted on his face and body, but he had a number of defensive wounds on the hand that hadn't been pinned beneath his wife's body. Dr. Highland explained that the couple had fought for their lives. He told the court, We have two dead individuals encased in bedclothes, irregularly located on a bed in a room where there is blood on the ceiling and blood on the walls. I think that implies that some sort of struggle occurred. The prosecution rested after Highland's testimony. The defense filed a motion to suppress the AA statements as confidential in the same manner as statements made to a doctor or priest, but the judge declined. Paul Cox's mother, Mary, testified. She said he had wet the bed as a child and never seemed to reach his potential in school after being diagnosed with dysgraphia, a learning disability. She told the court, He seemed to not be doing his work. We were disappointed. Mrs. Cox told the court that he had also tried to take his own life by overdosing on Tylenol when he was 16. Following Cox's mother's testimony about his failed careers and the pressure he was placed under to do well, the victim's children, Aaron and Arati, explained that his story did not make them feel any different about him. Aaron said, I almost feel like I wish he had killed himself rather than inflict this on my family. Cox did not take the stand in his own defense. His attorney, Andrew Rubin, told the court, He doesn't remember the incident and everything he said to everyone has already come out already. There's really nothing he could add to the proceeding. 
Dr. David Weber, a psychiatrist called by the defense, told the court that he believed that Paul Cox was in a psychotic state when the murders were committed. Dr. Weber had spoken with Cox on several occasions since his arrest and found that he was suffering from four different disorders, psychosis, learning disorders, alcoholism, and a personality disorder. The psychiatrist testified that he believed Cox had suffered a severe alcoholic blackout on the night in question, and his fantasies about killing his parents came to the forefront when he broke into the Sherva's home. Dr. Weber told the court, He went through these actions as if he were going back in time to eliminate all the people he sought to blame for all his problems when he was seven years old. It stands to reason that he wasn't in possession of his reason at the time. Forensic psychologist Dr. Daniel Martell said that Cox was borderline schizophrenic, according to tests given to him a month before the trial began. Dr. Martell told the court, He works very hard to present himself in a way that shows he's together. He's groomed. He's presentable. Underneath, he's a gentleman who is shattered. He's in an existential crisis. Dr. Martell was of the belief that Cox had killed the Shervas in a psychotic-like state. He was acting in a trance-like or dream-like state in which he was unable to know the consequences of his behavior and whether it was right or wrong. Another defense expert, psychiatrist Dr. Stuart Kleinman, stated he believed Cox had been in a dissociative state when he killed the Shervas. Dr. Kleinman said that it had not just been a random act of violence, but a delusion that Cox was killing his parents that led him to the house. Dr. Kleinman told the court, If Mr. Cox's intent was to commit a random murder, one has to conclude that there are many other houses closer to the accident site. The prosecutor hit back regarding the expert's claims that Cox was in a psychotic-like state as it was a medical condition and said, You're either psychotic or you're not. You can't be a little bit pregnant. The prosecution's psychiatrist, Dr. Alan Tuckman, said he found no reason to believe that Cox was insane at the time of the killing. He told the court, Mr. Cox had some personality disorders. He had a problem with alcohol abuse. But from my review of the records and my discussion with Mr. Cox, I saw no evidence of any severe mental disease. The last rebuttal witness called was Dr. Robert Berger. He told the court that he felt as though Cox was criminally responsible for his own conduct. Dr. Berger referred to elements of the murder that showed Cox was aware of his actions and their consequences at the time. Dr. Berger noted that both victims had their throats slit, indicating a purposeful act intended to kill them. The fact that Cox had broken in through the back door showed that he was trying to avoid being detected. During closing arguments, the defense claimed that the evidence and testimony showed that his client was temporarily insane when he killed the Shervas. Rubin told the jury, It's not a defense to murder to intend to kill one person and kill somebody else. There was no transferred intent. That implies rational thinking on the part of Paul Cox. He was out of his mind. The Paul Cox who's sitting there is not the same Paul Cox from December 31, 1988. Something in Paul Cox snapped on December 31, 1988. There is absolutely no other way to explain this crime. 
Prosecutor Boland said that Cox's actions betrayed his claims of insanity. He told the court, The defense wants you to believe that Cox is the victim, a victim of some kind of learning disability, such that when he slit the throats of the Shervas to make sure they were dead, he was in a dissociative state. If anyone went into a dissociative state at that point, it was Shanta Sherva. It's the latest rage today. Everybody's a victim. You get caught and you're suddenly a victim. What about old-fashioned concepts of responsibility in the sense of you're responsible for your actions, you are responsible for your conduct? The true picture of the defendant is that of a manipulative sociopath whose antisocial traits manifested themselves early in life and continue to this day. The jury were sent to deliberate and permitted to consider lesser charges of first or second degree manslaughter. Deliberations continued over two days before the judge was sent a note telling him that one juror had based their verdict on opinion and had no evidence to support it. Tensions were high amongst the sequestered jurors when they remained deadlocked for a week, when the sole juror refused to change their verdict. On June 28, 1994, State Supreme Court Justice James R. Cowhey declared a mistrial after being told by the jury that one juror had continued to disregard testimony, evidence, and the law in order to come to a verdict. It was devastating for the victim's family, who had waited so long for justice. One of the jurors said he was confident that the next jury to hear the case would come to a verdict in less than a day, as it had been a single holdout from the start. Paul Cox remained out on bail until the retrial began in October 1994. Once again, Prosecutor Bolin went through the state's version of events and described the murder as utter and complete depravity. Defense attorney Andrew Rubin described Cox as the black sheep of a prominent family who had become an alcoholic to cope with the feeling of never meeting his parents' expectations. Rubin described the drunken crash in the early hours of New Year's Eve 1988 as the straw that broke the camel's back. He said that Cox had killed the Shervas during a drunken blackout and only began remembering what had happened when he dreamt about it. Rubin stated, He didn't always see the victims in his dreams, but when he did, the victims were his mother and father. The Alcoholics Anonymous members Cox had confessed to testified once again, and they told the court they had not reported what he said because AA was supposed to be a confidential group. On November 18th, Cox took the stand in his own defense. He told the court he had a learning disorder that was not diagnosed until he was 18 years old. It had left him unable to succeed academically, no matter how hard he tried or how much his parents pushed him to do better. He had always felt unloved by his parents, and he recalled feeling humiliated by a reward chart that his mother displayed in the kitchen with gold stars stuck to the days where he did not wet the bed. Cox said that he began drinking heavily in high school. Eventually, he needed to drink every day to stop his hands from shaking when he woke up in the morning. He told the court that he began having dreams about the murder shortly after seeing TV reports about it at his parents' home. He claimed to have no memories of the actual events, 
only what he had seen in his dreams. Cox told the court, There would be dreams where I would see myself with the knife in an up-and-down motion and slashing side to side. I never saw the knife going into anything. It was just the motion of the knife. When asked if he committed the murders, Cox replied, I still can't believe that I did it, but I look at the evidence and I must have. To say I'm sorry would be a total understatement. There are days I wake up where I can't understand simple things like, if I committed these murders, why was my life spared and my younger brother's taken? There are days I can't understand why I'm here and he's not. During cross-examination by the prosecution, it was suggested that Cox had rehearsed his testimony. He was asked why he had not turned himself in when he realized what he had done. Cox explained that he had been advised not to because he could still be of service to other people. He also claimed to have been relieved when he was arrested. Cox's testimony greatly upset the Sherva children. Aaron Sherva said, He's not the victim, he's the perpetrator. My parents are the real victims here. During the expert testimony from psychiatrist Dr. Berger, the court heard that Dr. Berger did not believe Cox suffered from any serious mental or emotional disturbance. He also argued that the defense's claim that the acts had been committed during a period of psychosis did not fit with his knowledge or experience. Dr. Berger said, If it was a hallucination, he would have stabbed into the air. I've never seen transposition of faces described in literature. The trial then moved on to closing arguments. Defense attorney Andrew Rubin told the jury, An honest evaluation of the evidence can lead you to only one conclusion, that at the time of the murder of the Shervas, Paul Cox was not in his right mind. He was legally insane. Rubin said that the amount of violence inflicted on Lakshman Sherva was telling, as Cox had always expressed greater hatred toward his father when he was treated for suicidal ideation as a teenager. Rubin also denied that Cox had fabricated the story about having an alcoholic blackout to remove responsibility from himself. Rubin said, Nothing here was concocted after the fact. Nothing here was concocted at all. The prosecution disagreed, and they told the jury, What we have here is someone who got drunk, broke into a house, for whatever reason, killed two people and took off. He committed murder. This may sound trite, but it's true. He didn't show the victims any mercy, so why should you give him any mercy? While the jury were deliberating, Shanta and Lakshman's daughter, Arati, stated, It's apparent that from the beginning he's been taught that he has no responsibility for his actions. Unfortunately, my parents had to pay for his lack of responsibility. After eight long days, the jury of 11 women and one man returned with a verdict. They found Paul Cox not guilty of murder, but guilty of two counts of second-degree manslaughter. After the verdict was announced, Cox's father, Francis, released a statement that read, Neither my wife nor I recognized at the time how sick Paul was. 
we will eternally regret we were not aware of his serious illness until after this tragedy. This tragedy has destroyed the lives of two families, but now that the verdict has been rendered and we accept the judgment of the court as God's will, it is our hope that understanding people will allow us to begin to put our lives back together after this terrible ordeal. A statement written by Cox was also released by his family in which he said, I am profoundly sorry for this tragedy to the Sherva family as well as to my own family. I was very sick at the time of these actions and I will regret them for the rest of my life. I will now accept the judgment of the court and God's will and will continue to work to overcome my illness. I understand that it may be beyond the Sherva family to forgive these actions. Again, all I can say is I am profoundly sorry. Speaking at a press conference following the verdict, Arati, who was pregnant with her second child, told reporters, He acted with no conscience and has acted with no remorse whatsoever throughout this trial. He and his family have shown absolutely no remorse at all and have been both an insult to our family as well as the court system. We're relieved that his days of claiming to be a victim have come to an end. Paul Cox was no victim. He was a victimizer. He deserves no mercy from the court and the justice system. Before the sentencing hearing three months later, in March 1995, Arati told the reporter dispatch that she was going to ask for the maximum sentence. She had traveled to the White Plains courthouse with her two young sons, who had never gotten the chance to meet their grandparents. Arati's brother Aaron was also present with his own sons. He said, The Cox family can kind of kiss Paul goodbye and see him in jail. We will never see our parents again. When the sentencing hearing began, a tearful Cox stood to address the court. Basically, I really don't know what I can say. I am remorseful. I am sorry. If there was something I could do or say, I would do it. I would say it. For the rest of my life, I'm going to regret what happened that night. I'm not lying. I'm sorry. That's all I can say. His words were dismissed by Arati, who, in her own statement, told him, There is no forgiveness. Piety in words without piety in action is meaningless. She called his defense of temporary insanity psychological mumbo-jumbo. Arati blasted his testimony about his childhood as being the Twinkie deprivation defense. Arati told the court, My parents were wonderful people who believed in the American way. I'd like to think they can be served by the criminal justice system. She also told Cox she hoped his family would suffer seeing him locked up. Presiding Judge Cowhee told Cox he had to be held accountable for his actions, despite his drinking problem. Cowhee told him, Explanations, no matter how interesting or informative they may be, do not change the inevitable and irreversible results. Paul Cox received maximum consecutive sentences, meaning he would spend at least 16 years behind bars. His defense counsel immediately announced they would appeal both the conviction and the sentence. Paul Cox applied for a marriage license while awaiting transfer from the county jail to a maximum security prison. 
He had been dating a University of Bethlehem student named Katie Davis since the end of his first trial. She described Cox as a caring, loving, and sensitive man. Katie told reporters, The murder of the Shervas was extremely tragic, but that one terrible, unfortunate event happened when Paul was very sick. On March 21, 1995, Katie and Cox were married at Westchester County Jail in Valhalla. Her friend told the reporter dispatch, She loves him. The whole situation is mind-boggling, but if she's happy, I'm supportive. Granted, this may not be the wisest decision of her life, but at least he won't cheat on her. Cox's legal team filed an appeal against his conviction, citing what he told other AA members was protected by the same laws that protect confessions made to Catholic priests, and as such, his arrest and subsequent prosecution were unconstitutional. His conviction had been reaffirmed by the Supreme Court in 1999, but a new appeal was launched in May 2001 that claimed the evidence against him, including his fingerprints, had come from an arrest that was not supported by probable cause. It was argued this violated his Fourth Amendment rights, the right that protects people from unreasonable search and seizure by the government. Cox also claimed that his confession to other AA members constituted confidential communication, and using that to arrest him violated the First and Fourteenth Amendments. In July 2001, District Judge Charles Bryant ruled that Cox's Alcoholics Anonymous confession should not have been used against him, as he had confessed in compliance with the 12-step program he had to follow as a member of AA. Judge Bryant concluded that because the AA has religious aspects, including references to God and the use of prayer, it should be protected by the First Amendment, like other religious communications. The judge said, Clearly, it is possible as a matter of constitutional law to have and to practice a religion without having a clergyman as such or where all members exercise the office of clergyman to the extent of receiving confessions. Even though Cox's conviction was overturned as a result, he had to stay in jail until an appeal by the Westchester District Attorney, Jeanine Pirro, was completed. Pirro had said, This is the first time I've heard in 25 years in law enforcement and on the bench that AA meetings are equivalent to a priest-penitent meeting or psychiatrist-patient discussion. In July 2002, the Federal Appeals Court ruled that Cox's confession was not made at a group meeting, in confidence, or to obtain spiritual guidance. This meant that even if AA was granted the same status as a religion, The confessions were not privileged, and his conviction was reinstated. District Attorney Pirro said, It's the right decision. This attempt to turn a roommate and lover conversation into a priest-penitent privilege didn't cut mustard with the Second Circuit. Paul Cox was released on parole from Woodburn Correctional Facility in March 2015 after serving almost 20 years in prison. This episode was researched and written by Eileen McFarlane, editing and scoring by Corey Hiltman, 
script editing, additional writing, and production direction by Rosanna and Benjamin Fitton. For more on our series and notes on this episode, please visit theywalkamonguspodcast.com. And for more on the Law & Crime Podcast Network, please visit lawandcrime.com podcasts. This has been They Walk Among America. Thank you for listening, and please be safe. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.